The book of Proverbs is a book of practical wisdom, and on Sunday mornings we have been examining some of these Proverbs, and today we come to chapter 29, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 will be our starting point today as we think about the Word of God and human flourishing. I'm calling this series of messages Wisdom for Human Flourishing, for that's exactly what the book of Proverbs is. It is God's wisdom, inspired of the Holy Spirit, penned by King Solomon about how we are to order our lives that we might experience the fullness of God's grace. So today, the Word of God and human flourishing, Proverbs 29, verse 18. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Proverbs 29 verse 18 is perhaps the most misabused verse in all of the book of Proverbs. Perhaps you have a translation that reads something like this. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And unfortunately, there have been multitudes of Christians, including preachers, and probably this preacher in days gone by, who have misused that verse as a pretext for vision casting. No vision for a strategic plan, the church will drop and die. And no vision for a new building, the church will cease to be everything that it ought to be. Well, those things are well and good, and there are other places in the Scripture to go to make those cases, but Proverbs 29, verse 18, is not one of those places. This verse is not about vision casting. Now, wise leaders know how to cast vision and to rally God's people to achieve great God-glorifying goals. I think of Moses in the Old Testament, who was the leader who mobilized the Israelites uh, to leave Egypt and to go up to the threshold of the promised land, though he himself could not lead them in. I think of uh, Nehemiah, the the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who went back to Jerusalem when the city was in ruins and led the people to rebuild the wall Uh, in 52 days. These are examples of visionary biblical leaders. But I say again, this verse, Proverbs 29, 18, is not about vision casting. This one verse is about the place of God's word in causing an individual, a family, a church, or a nation to flourish. Look at it again. This verse has two parts. The first part is a warning. Here's the warning. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. And then the second part is a promise. But blessed is he who keeps the law. So as we think this morning about the word of God and human flourishing, Let's think, first of all, about the danger of rejecting God's Word. There is a real danger when people reject the Word of God. Now, there are many people who reject the Word of God because they don't have access to the Word of God. It was not a decision on their part to reject. They just don't have a copy of the Scriptures. Nobody's ever told them about the Scriptures. And then there are those who have access to the scriptures who neglect uh, the reading and the study of the word of God. And they, in turn, do not receive this revelation from God of his will and his ways. So look at it again, verse 18, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. You may have a translation like the ESV who says there's, where there's no prophetic vision, there's no word from the, the prophets of old, where there's no divine revelation, where there's no word from God. 
Now, all that we know about God is, is that which God has disclosed to us. We don't know anything about God except what God has revealed to us. And uh, God reveals himself in the creation, but that's, that's a very uh, sh uh, uh, low revelation of the will of God. God reveals himself to us in the human conscience. conscience. But the fullness of God's revelation is found in the, in the words that came in Old Testament times through the prophets who, who gave us the law and the, the, the writings and the, the prophets, the prophecies. And then in New Testament times uh, through the apostles who gave us the, uh, the writings of the New Testament, the gospels and the letters and only the apocalypse. And so God's revelation is found in the 66 books that make up the canon of our scripture. And God has given us in the pages of this book everything that you and I need for life and godliness right here. And so this is the, the revelation of God given to us in inscripturated form. God's self-disclosure. But what happens when people neglect the word of God or don't have the word of God? Well, the scripture says, look at it again, they cast off restraint. Uh, there's one version that says, the people run wild. Ultimately, they perish. And there's great danger and great peril in rejecting God's holy word. Seen in the history of the, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, uh, you see it uh, really starkly and clearly in the book of Judges. Uh, there was one generation after another after another who fell into rebellion and sin and God had to raise up a strong judge to bring them back to himself. But here's, here's the last verse of the book of Judges. And this characterizes the entire book. Here it is. Everyone did as he saw fit. Think about that. Everyone did as he saw fit. Or you may have a version that said, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the days of the judges was about 3,400 years ago. So we can, we can surmise from that that situation ethics did not start in the 20th century with Joseph Fletcher. They had situation ethics 3,400 years ago during the days of the judges. Everyone did as he saw fit. You become your own standard of right and wrong, truth and error, morality or immorality. You're your own, your own uh, canon of scripture. And so... The writer of Proverbs tells us that where there's no revelation or people refuse to embrace the revelation of God, the people cast off restraint. Now you can see that repeatedly in the Old Testament, but let's just look at one classic case of rejecting the word of the Lord. We'll come back to Proverbs chapter 18, but look in Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea was an 8th century B.C prophet of God who prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and his primary ministry was to the northern kingdom. And in Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and following, we read, uh, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. Here's the charge. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. How would you like to live in a, in a culture or a society like that? Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, bloodshed. Well, I think we do, to a great degree. Yeah, this is where we are. 
So there, there's, there's the indictment that the prophet Hosea gives against the people of Israel. Now, look in verse 3 and following. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the fields and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. It sounds like ecological disaster, doesn't it? Let's read on, verse 4. I want you to notice how the priests are complicit here in this, this uh, moral meltdown in 8th century B.C. Israel. Verse 4, But let no man bring a charge, let no man accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against the priests. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. The prophets are the spokesmen of God. Now, Hosea was not stumbling, but other false prophets were stumbling. They were falling to the same kind of sins that the people of the land were. So I will destroy your mother, and my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If you underline in your Bible, you might want to underline that last phrase there. We'll come back to it in just a bit, where it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you as my priest, because you have ignored the law of your God. I will ignore your children. The more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me, and they exchange their glory for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness, and it will be like people, like priests, and I will punish both of them for their ways and will repay them for their deeds. Do you see that phrase? Like people, like priests? Yeah. Uh, that, that sounds like uh, what we learned in, uh, in English literature, in the Canterbury Tales. You remember that phrase about the priest, if the gold rusts, what will the iron do? Yeah. Well, in the days of Hosea, the, the priesthood was corrupt. They were not giving the word of the Lord. Look again in verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What kind of knowledge? The knowledge of God, of God's laws, and God's counsel, and God's commands. Not there. Therefore, I have rejected you. You've ignored the law of, the God, of, of your God. I will ignore you. It's a sad, sad indictment of the nation. Now, what was true then is equally true today. It was true in the 19th century. True today. Listen to what uh, Charles Finney, who was the Billy Graham, uh, the most famous evangelist in the mid part of the 19th century in the United States, said about moral decay and the pulpits of the churches. Quote, if there is decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discernment, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses interest in Christianity, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. And indeed, Finney's right. There's not much wrong in, with the United States of America today that couldn't be fixed in short order if every pastor of every church stood in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, month after month, and it took the word of God and proclaimed the whole counsel of God, including those parts that people don't want to hear, and call them to repentance. Tragically, we have too many mild-mannered preachers preaching mild-mannered sermons to mild-mannered congregations about how to be more mild-mannered. 
God have mercy on those so-called men of the cloth. They have a wishbone where they need a backbone of steel. How will the people come to God in repentance and faith unless the, unless the pastors call them to come? How will they know unless the pastors take up the word of God and explain the scriptures to them? Precept upon precept, line by line. It won't happen. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was the, in my estimation, the greatest Russian of the 20th century. He was a Christian. He resisted Marxism, communism, spent some years in the Soviet gulag in Siberia, was later released, came to the United States. In 1983, he spoke at the Templeton Foundation Award, and this is what he said, among other things. Over a half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened, they said. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own effort toward the, toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval, that is, the 70 years of communist rule. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could have not put it more accurately than to repeat, quote, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And if we think we can forget God and not to have similar consequences, then we are pursuing a fool's dream. Historian Will Durant authored uh, the story of civilization. It's about, it's 11 volumes. It's about this length on one of my bookshelves. Will Durant, after studying all the great civilizations from the beginning down to the time of his death, said, and I quote, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has been destroyed, until it has destroyed itself from within. Uh, we put ourselves at danger when we neglect and reject the Word of God. So let me give you some examples. What are the consequences of rejecting God's Word here in our beloved homeland? the United States of America. Exhibit A, the sanctity of life from conception to natural death is clearly taught in Holy Scripture. Life begins at conception. Therefore, that Preborn baby in the mother's womb is a full person to be developed. But uh, instead of heeding what the scriptures clearly say, we have decided that we will be a culture of death. Forty-eight years ago, now infamous, my estimation, the most infamous decision ever rendered from the Supreme Court of the United States, 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, which removed all state restrictions, and they were different from state to state, on abortion, making abortion legal up to the very moment of birth. And the consequence, now 62 million of our fellow citizens who had their lives snuffed out in the abortuaries of our land. 
If we believe the word of God, this would not ever have happened. And we will resist this until this is overturned and we become a country that embraces the dignity and sanctity of all life, pre-born and born. Exhibit B, marriage. Now, many would tell us today marriage is a human construct and laws are being changed today. I mean, if, I, if I've heard correctly, when you get your, you go and sign your marriage license, you're already legally married in the sight of the law, though you haven't had the ceremony. How crazy is that? Marriage is not a human construct. We didn't think it up. It is a God-ordained institution, and God clearly set forth in Genesis chapter 2, when he established uh, marriage as one man married to one woman until death do them part. That's what God says in his word. Uh, but as a society, we've been chipping away, chipping away at marriage as an institution between one man and one woman for as long as life shall last. It first started about 50 or so years ago when the state of California passed laws uh, of no-fault divorce and within just two or three years, all 50 states followed no-fault divorce. It used to be if you want to divorce your spouse, you had to have grounds. It had to be abuse or unfaithfulness or some other legitimate reason. Uh, but in our folly, we thought we can do better than what God says. We'll just do away with all the, all the stipulations that limit divorce. We'll just have no-fault divorce. You get tired of your spouse, you just cash her or him in and start over with somebody else. In my childhood, divorce was rare. Uh, among my friends, two or three dozen friends that I grew up with, been to school with, I know of only one whose parents divorced when we were children, just one. And the church has capitulated to that. How many pastors will say what God has to say in Scripture about that? But the Scripture is quite clear. Malachi, God says in the prophet Malachi, I hate divorce. Now, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's one thing to acknowledge I've failed, I need God's grace, I need his mercy, I need his forgiveness, I need to start over again. It's another thing to say, well, I just wasn't happy so God didn't want me to be miserable, therefore I'm just going to get a divorce. No, no, no. Thinking about marriage, not just divorce, what about cohabitation? It was rare when I was a child. I didn't know that word, cohabitation, but I knew this, I knew this phrase, shacking up. There weren't many shacking up, but there were some shacking up. Living together without the benefit of marriage. And now it is just by the millions, if you, read the, if you trust the statistics, it's just common. Which family has not had some, some child or grandchild or, or niece or nephew who's just living together without the benefit of marriage and, and nobody just thinks a thing about it? Where's the moral indignation? Where's the embrace of the clear teaching of Holy Scripture? You won't hear much about it. And from divorce to cohabitation, now we're at same-sex marriage, 2015, and the Supreme Court decision to overgo... Uh, yeah, it's a tongue twister for me. Obergefell decision. Now it's legal for a woman to be married to a woman and a man to be married to a man. Well, go read what the scripture says to say about that. Go, go check out, not just Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, they deal with that. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. There. Those kind of same-sex relationships are called unnatural. Detestable is the word used in my translation. 
The basic building block of a society which flourishes is, is the home. One man married to one woman till death do them part. This is God's plan. And when we turn our back on God's plan, we cast off all restraint and we suffer the consequences of our rejecting the word of God. Exhibit A, abortion. Exhibit B, marriage. Exhibit C, racial and ethnic hatred. These are troublesome days in our land. Racial tension is higher than it's been in many, many years. People are stirred. Injustice takes place. Ethnic minorities far too often are mistreated by those of us who are in the majority. Doesn't take many. I want to tell you, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again today. White supremacy is a sin against God. And to those few of you who are not white, black supremacy is a sin against God. It's wrong. Racial and ethnic hatred is wrong. When the Apostle Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in, in Athens, you can read about it in Acts chapter 17. Among other things, he said to those gathered there to hear him, from one man, he, God, has made every nation of men. That is, we are all the sons and daughters of Abraham. There really are not many races. There are many ethnicities. There's only one race, and that is the human race. And for a white person to have pride, I am better than a person who is black or brown or yellow, or for a black person to have pride and say, I have, I'm better than a person who is some other race, is a sin against God. God, all of us bleed red when we are cut. I'm telling you, the people of God are going to deal with this. There's not going to be a solution to the racial crisis today apart from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can legislate in Washington all they want to. We've got to have a, a change of heart so that when I come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I fall in love with the people that Jesus suffered and bled and died for. Exhibit A, abortion. Exhibit B, marriage. Exhibit C, Racial injustice and bigotry exhibit D. Riots in the streets. And we've had our share, fair share of those in the last 12 months. Last summer we had riots on the West Coast from the political left. And then in January we had a riot in our nation's capital as the capital building was assaulted by those from the political right. And both are guilty as charged. Both. Listen to what Scripture says in Romans chapter 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And that's true whether you're from the political left or the political right. This is all a part of the danger of rejecting the holy word of God. There's no excuse. No excuse for anarchy in the streets. None. Peaceful protest, we have a constitutional guarantee about that. But it has to be peaceful. But looting and burning, breaking down doors and windows, whether it's a storefront, on the west coast or whether it's a door to our nation's capital is a sin against God. Let 
The danger of rejecting the word of God is very great. And we'll pay a high price if we continue to reject the word of God. John Adams was our second president. On October 11, 19, excuse me, 1798, he gave an address to the United States military. And among other things in that address, he said, and I quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. We have this wonderful Constitution with checks and balances. But it's, it's, it's not going to save us if we're not a moral and religious people. That's what John Adams said. Either we govern ourselves, our own passions, or we have to be governed by a tyrant eventually. Fifty years later, Robert Winthrop, who was then Speaker of the House of Representatives, wrote, Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or a power without, either by the Word of God or by, by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or the bayonet. That's pretty graphic. Either we're either going to be controlled by this Bible, or we're going to just continue to, de to, de to degenerate into anarchy and chaos, and then we have to be controlled by military might. Who wants that? Either we build our lives, we build our homes, we build our churches, we build our country on the word of God, or we perish. Simple as that. So, in the first part of Proverbs chapter 28, verse, 29, verse 18, we see the danger of rejecting God's word. There it is, where there is no revelation the people cast off restraint. That's the warning. Then the second part of that verse is the promise. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, and here we find the second part of that verse says, Blessed is he who keeps the law. There is the blessing in the one who keeps the law of God. This word blessed in some translations is rendered happy. Happy is he who keeps the law. The law in this case is the word of God. God's revelation of himself to us. Look in Psalm chapter, chapter 1. Uh, the first Psalm, verses 1, 2, and 3, tells us, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Now, don't interpret prospers to mean uh, you get your dream sports car, or you become financially wealthy. But you prosper in the way that it really matters. You prosper in your relationship with God. You prosper in your relationship with your family members. You prosper uh, in, uh, in your community affiliations and in your church faith. You prosper. You have, you have a good life. You flourish. Whatever he does, he flourishes. Now, which, which is the blessing here? It's the man who, who delights in the law of the Lord. That's who. This is the indispensable book right here. Look in Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. Uh, Nehemiah was a political leader in the 5th century B.C., he had been the cupbearer to Artaxerxes in exile, 
and he had a burden to go back and see how the work was going there in uh, uh, Jerusalem. The Israelites had been taken off into captivity and some had gone back and the walls were broken down. It was just a very sad, sad situation. And Nehemiah went back and teamed up with Ezra, who was the religious leader. So you had the political leader, Nehemiah, and the religious leader, uh, Ezra, here to come together. And uh, in chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, we read, All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. That was one of the many gates that needed to be repaired. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which he had made of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So here... They rally the people there in, in Jerusalem. And Ezra the priest reads to them from the law of Moses. Beginning at daybreak, they went all the way till noon. I just like to go to church for about six hours. Huh? That'd be good, wouldn't it? I once went to a five-hour worship service down on the south coast of uh, England. It was a messianic synagogue. And it went right at five hours. It was good. I'll have to tell you about it sometime. A lot of crazy things happened there. But I'll tell you this. Forgive me for being a little crude, but all I could think about for that fourth, with that fifth and final hour was how full my bladder was. I'll tell you that. It'd been nice to have a halftime on that day. So. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter, chapter 8. And uh, so they, have, they read the law. And notice verse 5 and 6. Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! And they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So it's, it's certainly biblical to raise your hands and worship to God. If you're in contact with that, it's in the Bible. It's also biblical to bow down with your face to the ground and worship God. So if you're in contact with that, it's in the Bible too. Whatever's in the Bible is legitimate at Lakeview. Shouldn't be a problem for you. Verse 8 and 9. And they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear. That's what a preacher's supposed to do. Make the word of God clear. And given the meaning so that the people would understand what was being read. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They were weeping because they were being convicted of their sins. Their neglect of the clear teachings of Holy Scripture. Perhaps they hadn't heard it in a long time. Chapter 9, verse 1, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. That is an act of contrition and humility, seeking the Lord. Verse 2, and those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places. They confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of God but the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. And it all started when Ezra stood before the people and took out the book of the law of Moses and read to them from God's holy word and clearly explained to them this is what this means. Now, what happened 2,500 years ago in Nehemiah's time can happen again today in the United States of America, but it will not, will not, will not happen apart from the knowledge of the Word of God and obedience to the Word of God. But you can't obey what you don't know. 
Historian Paul Guchar said, and I quote, the Bible was the most imported, most printed, most distributed, and most read written text in North America up through the 19th century. But not today. Not even read by many in the church today. A return to the Word of God and to the God of the Word is our only hope. Yes, God is our greatest hope, but He's also our greatest threat. And if we repent, He's our hope. If we don't repent, He's our threat. To those who are looking for political solutions as the ultimate solution, may I say to you that political solutions are insufficient. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote for pro-life candidates, we should, that we shouldn't vote against gambling candidates. If we have a, this gambling thing passes, we need to vote them out of office if we can. But nevertheless, that's, that's not, that's not the, the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is moral and spiritual and religious. Why is this so? Because politics is downstream from culture. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, said, and I quote, In this country, public sentiment is everything. With it, nothing can fail. Against it, nothing can succeed. So whether it's uh, abortion or same-sex marriage or gambling or whatever the moral issue might be, those who run for a public office basically are, it's not true of all of them for sure, but they're more interested in the next election than they are in doing what's right. So whatever it takes to get elected, that's what they're going to do. And if, if we will rise up and say no to abortion, no to gambling, no to same-sex marriage, then they'll change and fall in line because politics is always downstream from culture. So if we're going to address these issues, we've got to address them, not the symptoms, but the root. And it starts right here in the human heart. When a man or a woman comes to genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she becomes a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. And you get new ambitions, you get new desires, you, you, you get new uh, views on these, on these moral, uh, moral issues, and, you, and you're transformed. Charles Colson was uh, special counsel to Richard Nixon, who was president of the United States, and came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ after he left the president's administration. Colson said, the kingdom of God will never arrive on Air Force One. That was true 50-something years ago when he said it's true today. The kingdom of God does not arrive with political power. It arrives with one repentant sinner at a time. And that's called evangelism. Colson also said, and I quote, I spent the first half of my professional life, and by the way, I mean just back after he left political life, came to Christ, he started prison fellowship, a ministry to prisoners. I quote him, I spent the first half of my professional life in politics and public service. I really believe that people could be changed by government being changed, but I never looked beyond government into the hearts of people. But when I became a Christian, I gained a new perspective on the actual influence political structures have on the course of history. I began to see that societies are changed only when people are changed, not the other way around. America's crisis is not political, it is moral, and it is spiritual. So, let me give you an example. In the last year or so, the state of New York passed the most Egregious abortion law ever passed by one of our 50 states. It's just whatever, whatever you want to do goes. 
And when it happened, the legislature, when it passed, the, the legislators applauded it. On the other hand, here in Alabama, we have some of the most restrictive abortion laws, waiting for a reversal of the Supreme Court decision. Hopefully someday, if the Roe v. Wade decision is overturned, it may or may never be overturned. But if it is overturned, then abortion will be no more in Alabama. So what makes Alabama different from New York and what makes New York different from Alabama? There, a majority of pro-life people in the state of Alabama. There's a majority of pro-death people in the state of New York. Why? Because we're in the heart of the Bible Belt. And if you want to get reelected to the Alabama legislature, you better be pro-life in most of our districts. We are a people of the book. So what does that say to us? It says to us, if you want to make New York pro-life like Alabama's pro-life, you've got to change the hearts of the people. How do you do it? You do exactly what we've been doing in New York City now for a number of years. You plant Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in New York City and throughout the state. If you really care about the future of your children and your grandchildren in this free land, these freedoms are quickly slipping away. If you really care, there are two things that I would encourage you to do. One is pray regularly for a mighty move of the Spirit of God across the land in awakening. We had a great awakening in the 1730s. In colonial days in New England, we had another great awakening in the eight, early 1800s, the great revivals that took place out on the American frontier in Tennessee and Kentucky. That was the frontier then. In the late 1850s, 57, 58, along in there was the great prayer revival that broke out in Fulton Street in New York City. And then in the late 1960s and early 70s, there was the Jesus movement. It started on the West Coast and swept across the country and swept multiplied thousands upon thousands from the, from the hippie counterculture into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God did that. He can do it again. We ought to pray for that. We can't orchestrate that. God is sovereign in these matters. But here's what we can do besides pray. We can sow these United States of America down with Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches like we are doing in New York City right now. Some of you students, when you graduate, don't just take a job in your field in Atlanta or Birmingham or Nashville. Go to some of these, these cities in the Northeast, the West Coast, they have very few gospel-preaching churches. You can be an accountant in Atlanta. You can be an accountant in New York City. You can be an engineer in Birmingham. You can be an engineer in Boston. And go link arms and hands with church planters who are seeking to proclaim the gospel. And these people come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the pastors stand before them Sunday by Sunday. And as you are teaching the word of God, eventually you'll get to all of these, these matters. And the people see for the first time, God's way is best. And then they start voting differently and the laws change. It's not top down from the White House. It's bottom up from the pews of our churches. America needs thousands upon thousands of new churches and we have the privilege to do it so before I stood to preach you saw a brief video from Kevin Ezell who is the president of our international mission board and uh, this is uh, the Easter season we'll be taking up the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions and typically they was these prayer guides and these uh, offering envelopes will be in the Sunday bulletins, but because of the pandemic, we're not doing Sunday bulletins. So I encourage you, and the service is over. They're on the tables there in the upstairs and the downstairs lobby. Take that, pray about that. 
make your finest extra gift this Easter season to the North American Mission Board through the Annie Armstrong offering if you really care about America. Jesus is the hope of this land. And the message of Jesus is spelled out in the pages of Holy Scripture. That's why we must get the word of God to our fellow citizens. And this word will point them to the Savior who came and suffered and bled and died, that all who repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in him shall be saved. Maybe you need to be saved. Jesus will save you. God is no respecter of persons. The promise of Scripture is absolutely immutable. Whoever, no exceptions, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, our Father, I thank you for the privilege to stand once again to open the Scriptures to my faith family. They listen so well. And yet, Lord, there, there are many who go to the Lord's house today and they don't get the word. They get other stuff or even more who don't go to any house of worship. Just stay home. God, I pray that you would raise up a multitude of men and women who would plant churches all across this land. We might have the revelation of God and be blessed. I pray now for those who don't know Christ in, this, in the sound of my voice, either in this room or online, who need to know Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, would you bring conviction to that man, woman, boy, or girl who needs to know Christ? And I pray that this very day, this very hour, they might come to saving faith for their eternal welfare and for your great glory. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.